Our second message this afternoon is actually two messages from Mr. Lawrence Gregory. They are Gog and Magog and Thanksgiving. Lawrence. Good afternoon. I have uh, two messages today. Uh, first one is about a rather confusing time. In the scriptures, we see the identification of Gog and Magog. And actually, there are two battles that they're occurring in the scriptures. One is at the beginning of the millennium, and the second one at the end of the millennium. Uh, but first, before we consider this subject, we need to see a few things about Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Ahead of us is the Great Tribulation, the heavenly signs, the work of the two witnesses, four of the seven seals of Revelation, the first resurrection, the millennium or 1,000 years, the great white throne judgment of a period of about 100 years, and then the new heaven and new earth, which lasts forever. Now, first let's go to the uh, scripture here, and we'll see a little bit about uh, Satan. Uh, this is important to understand this. We want to read from uh, Revelation, the 20th chapter, verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. After that, he must be loosed a little season. And so... During the millennium, during that 1,000-year period, Satan the devil is put away. And he's not able to deceive uh, any of the nations, any of the people. So what a peaceful, blissful time that 1,000-year period will be. Now, we want to go to uh, the 19th chapter, back a little bit in verse uh, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the description of Christ's coming uh, precedes this. Uh, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped the image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So this is a time described when the beast, that military power of the uh, European resurrected Roman Empire, and the false prophet, that false religious leader and spokesman for that agency, are thrown alive into this lake of fire 
And uh, you can imagine what a horrible burning death that will be as they are cast alive into that lake of fire, which we know is the beginning of the millennium, the start of the Gehenna fire or the hell fire. Now, let's go to back while we're right here, Revelation 20, verse 7. And it says, uh, And uh, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the num of, uh, number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down. This is uh, Gog and Magog and, and his armies. Came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet now, your King James says are. If you look in the original Greek in the diaglot or uh, the original Greek language will say where the beast and false prophet were and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the consequences of Satan being uh, cast into the lake of fire are eternal or forever. Not that they're conscious and not that he's going to be tormented forever and ever and ever in that uh, lake of fire some preach and some say the beast and false prophet are are there now they are technically because they were burned up and they ceased to exist and they've not come out of that so they've died a death but it's where the beast and false prophet were cast uh, that's after at the end of the thousand years now we want to see here uh, in Ezekiel the 28th chapter let's go back to the Old Testament uh, Ezekiel 28 it would be good to read sometime I'm not going to right now uh, read Ezekiel uh, 27 28 and 29 but uh, I want to uh, 37 38 and 39 but I want to just go to Ezekiel 28th chapter Turn there. It's already up on the on the board there, but uh, I want to read uh, 12 through 14. This is a description about Satan the devil. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, "Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus says the Lord, You." Seal up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of the laborers and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day thou wast created. So this is not a description of a man, obviously, it's a type, and the uh, description is of, uh, of Satan the devil. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You was upon the holy mountain of God, you have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You was perfect 
in the way that from the day that you was created till iniquity was found in you by the multitude of your merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy thee O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire your heart was lifted up because of your beauty you have corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness I will cast thee to the ground I will lay thee before kings that you may behold that they may behold thee you have defiled thy sanctuary by the multitude of thine iniquities by the iniquities of thy traffic therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you it will devour you and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold you all they that know you among the people shall be astonished at you you shall be a terror and never shall you be any more now there are some that say that Satan the devil will live forever as he's cast into the lake of fire and tormented but here it's very clear that he is going to be destroyed and he is going to cease to exist and God is going to cause some kind of uh, spontaneous combustion to take place in that lake of fire and consume the devil and he will be no more we have thankfully we have the scriptures to show that during the millennium he will be asleep but he'll be resurrected at the end of the millennium but then this occurs at the end of the 1000 years when he is destroyed before uh, he is able to deceive any more nations so we can thankful and we can rejoice and be thankful for that uh, now let's go to uh, Ezekiel uh, 37 verse 24 this is a time during the millennium when uh, David is going to be resurrected and uh, let's see uh, and David my servant shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd they shall walk in my statutes my judgments observe my statutes and do them and uh, there's more about this description here during the millennium of when David is going to be once again brought back to life and rule and reign in Jerusalem they're over Israel that's going to be brought back from captivity and there are a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that show the time when Israel is going to be brought out of captivity and is going to return to the representative tribes to the uh, land of uh, Israel and what we call Israel today and uh, they are going to be living there in peace during the millennium but at the very beginning uh, it's going to take some time for God to uh, bring peace and to take care of uh, the discipline and judgment of some of those adversarial nations now let's go to Revelation the 16th chapter and uh, we'll begin in verse 12 and the sixth angel 
poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And these are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So we want to remember in the scriptures there's a king of the south, which is identified in Daniel, and the king of the north, and then the king of the east, the kings. Now, the, uh, let me just take a few minutes and explain here, and you can do some more research on this. But the Russian and Chinese complex, complex uh, some of those families are intermingled. And so you have the beast power, which is led by Assyria or Germany, and the Roman Catholic Church in Europe and some of those uh, uh, Western European nations. And then you have the Eastern nations, and uh, to the far north, Chinese and Russian Soviet bloc, and some of the intermingling of some of those uh, peoples that are going to uh, come against uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, let's continue on here. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now we hear a lot, and I'll just say this, uh, we talk a lot about the battle of Armageddon. But Armageddon is the gathering place in the valley of Jehoshaphat. So uh, those uh, hordes come against the king of the north that has uh, come there in, uh, settled in the... Um, uh, Valley of Jehoshaphat in this great war. And so at that time, if you go back and read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll see that God begins to work and to lead the eastern nations that come against them in war to begin to turn and think about all of the plunder and all of the riches that they could accomplish by going against Jerusalem and going against uh, Christ as he is beginning to rule and to reign in Jerusalem at that time. And so uh, the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven up from the throne saying, It is done, or it is completed, as uh, Moffat translation says. And there were voices of lightnings and thunders, and there was a great earthquake, uh, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided in three parts, and uh, the cities of the nations fell, and the, and, uh, the great Babylon came in uh, remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And so, now, I, I'm not going to explain, but you can do some study. In the book of Revelation, there are six, there are seven seals. And then there are seven trumpet plagues. And then in about chapter 14, as an inset chapter, it talks about the six angels. Six angels are separate from the seventh vials or last plagues that are poured out that constitute the seventh seal of Revelation. And so uh, the uh, time of uh, the uh, Gog and Magog and their fight against Israel. Like I said, when you read Ezekiel and you read Revelation, 
it's kind of confusing, but you've got to remember when you look at certain things that happen that there's two distinct times when Satan is released from his uh, captivity of a thousand years, he goes back to what he's doing, deceiving the nations. And so who is he going to pick on? Uh, Gog and Magog from all over this uh, earth before he brings them from the north and from the east. But now he brings and he goes out to Gog and Magog and deceives them. And they, what do they do? They take up what they did a thousand years before. They think Christ is over. He's ruled enough peace and there's time now, great uh, time of war. And so they come against uh, Israel, but they're destroyed and they are dealt with. So uh, that's the first. And I just wanted to give you enough today to whet your appetite to study more about Gog and Magog and about those uh, activities and prophecy that are going to take place. Now I'm going to switch uh, to another topic, another subject, and that is Thanksgiving. And um, this weekend, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday today, uh, we have a, we've beginning to have some change in uh, Thanksgiving observance. My Thursday newspaper was about that thick with ads, advertisements of uh, Friday, Black Friday, they call it, of all of the stores that were going to be open. Now they're talking about beginning to open on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, and that's making some of the employees a little aggravated because now they're going to have to uh, take off for the holiday, but the work in the store selling and uh, Thanksgiving has begun to, have you noticed, they begin to call it Turkey Day. Turkey Day. That's an insult. It's a day of Thanksgiving, and we're going to have some scriptures here. First, we're going to have a little bit of history and uh, review a little bit of history for you to whet your appetite. And we know that in England in the 15th and 16th century, uh, there was some uh, persecution and opposition to some of the Protestant churches that were calling themselves uh, separatists later, identified themselves as separatists, as pilgrims, as Puritans. And uh, there was uh, some Catholic opposition and persecution of some of those congregations. So some of them were leaving England to uh, go to other countries. And Holland was a favorite country. And so... Uh, the congregation, and you might remember some of the uh, pastors of, uh, that were called William Brewster and uh, John Robinson and Richard Clifton and others, and you might, might remember, if you've done some research from some of the history of some of those uh, early members of the congregation, so they decided to go to Amsterdam, Holland, this congregation, uh, and uh, they had some opposition, some difficulties there, so they went on to Leiden, Holland, and they had some opposition and persecution there, so they decided, because they weren't fitting in with some of the other congregations, Protestants there, that uh, they would elect to go to the United States, and so they paid a sum of money to the, now, the United States, we know, was uh, a new land, and it was controlled by the French to the north in Canada, and the uh, England, or the British to the east, and then uh, Portugal, and then Mexico, and then uh, 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 
some of the Western United States to some of the other countries and the Northern to the Russians. And so the United States was uh, really uh, a divided up land by the uh, countries except the East Coast, which we know later became the 13 colonies and then uh, originally the United States spread from there with some other westward movement and development was uh, owned by the, or they considered they owned the British. And so this little congregation decided to spend some money and, and pay for their way. And so they ended up on the Mayflower. You know the history of that, how they start off with two, two ships and the one sprang some leaks, the Speedwell, and they turned back. And they put about 102 to 105, somewhere there's little different figures, plus crew on this little Mayflower ship. And uh, it took, they left uh, Plymouth, England on September 6th. And uh, they were coming to the United States, so they had some storms and some difficulties. And uh, I don't want to bore you with uh, all the history of some of the things that took place on the Mayflower. And I looked at a replica of that back in uh, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, and it's, it was tiny with three floors. I, I wondered how in the world were they able to get about 125 people on that little ship and, and some of the foods and stuff. Because they had to spend a couple of months out in the ocean uh, coming from England to the United States. So they uh, had a charter for the eastern coast, but it was one of the storms was blowing them off coast. So they cut into, uh, this was uh, on the 9th of... Uh, November uh, in 1620, so they cut into the Cape of uh, Good Hope, and there's some islands out in the barrier there. You, you, you can look on the map and see the protection there. And uh, then on the Sabbath, on the 11th, they uh, decided to come ashore. Now, some of the history about that area there, as you know, it was uh, Indian settlements, and they had some houses and some grain and corn there, but they had had a smallpox epidemic a couple of years before, so that whole area was cleared out with the Indians. So they were completely gone. And Samoset and Squanto, a couple of the uh, residents of that area had been taken prisoner uh, on shipboard and they had taken to Europe and then uh, to England. And they had learned English and so they, they were back in the area. And so you've got this area abandoned that providentially God was seeing that the Mayflower had blown off course and it cut into that uh, bay there for protection. And so they were a couple of months from September 6th to November 9th. But on the 11th then, because they, uh, about a third of the members of that congregation were actually members. And the others were, were called strangers. They were unconverted. And so some of those unconverted people thought, when I get ashore, I'm going to do as I please. I'm not going to have anything to do with the government of this uh, congregation. And so we have the 1620 uh, uh, proclamation uh, called the Mayflower, and I'm not going to read that, Mayflower Compact, written and signed by about 30-some members of that congregation. And that was the start of our documents as Later, Massachusetts became a state and then one of the 13 colonies and then involved in the uh, Constitution and the, the Declaration of Independence and some of these documents that we have over here, uh, beginning with the uh, Ten Commandments back there and then the Mayflower Compact. 
But I'm not going to read that. You can read those later. And to see that they agreed when they landed on the shores of Plymouth. They left Plymouth, England, and now they're in Plymouth. They identified in 1620 of the United States. Now, during that first year, they had some difficulties, and they had low harvest, but they had planted some of uh, the grain that they had found in some of the abandoned buildings, corn, and they had fished, and they had a little bit. Now, they had some agreement with England that had sponsored them for so much. They had to pay like uh, 10 to 20 shillings per member, which was uh, several thousand dollars when you add up 102 members, 105 members of the congregation. That was quite a bit of money, plus the cost of the Mayflower and everything. Well, the Mayflower went back, and uh, later it was dismantled, and some other ships were made from it, and, and some of the beams ended up in some chicken houses and farmhouses and things. So the Mayflower was completely uh, gutted and transformed into other ships, and uh, you can read all this history. It's really interesting and fascinating how God providentially provided protection for that little congregation to come to America where he wanted them. And he provided for them an abandoned area. He provided uh, uh, clothing for them and uh, uh, food for them in and, and this uh, abandoned city. Now, in the first year in the fall of... Uh, the uh, 1621, uh, they decided to give thanks and have a celebration of a, a weekend for three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And so they invited some of the Indian tribes from that area, and uh, they uh, cooked up, and they, they had some deer and turkeys, and they had a, a corn and that they had uh, reared from their crops, uh, some of the blessings that they had and so they gave thanks and they had parties and and a great celebration during that first Thanksgiving in November of 1621 that was the first Thanksgiving now in uh, uh, many years ago I copied out the presidential proclamation of George Washington and uh, Abraham Lincoln because I wasn't sure how long they would last. But I'm not going to read them since we had a reference to them in the first uh, um, message today, uh, the, the presidential proclamation of George Washington in uh, 1780, third day of October, 1789, and from Abraham Lincoln and uh, his proclamation. So I've uh, copied those out. Uh, Ken didn't know that or I would have given him and he could have read it from here. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's a little of the history of uh, our Thanksgiving in Thursday of during the years. Now, sometimes it might have been observed uh, but not really recognized as a, as a day of Thanksgiving, uh, just as a, a day of appreciation. But those pre presidential proclamations by George Washington and uh, Abraham Lincoln also made it official that these were national holidays as well as overtones of religious significance. Now, uh, I'm going to uh, read uh, some scriptures here. Uh, let's go back to the Old Testament. Uh, I kept checking to see if Ken would 
read some of the scriptures that I had written down, but fortunately he left me some that he didn't touch on. So I'm going to go back to Psalms 147 and uh, verse 7. Psalm 147. Verse 7. He would like this one. It says, Sing. I'm not going to sing today. Uh, sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. We'll do this later when we all congregation sing, when I can sing so low. Uh, I get, uh, I'm a little puzzled that Glenda sits in front of me. And, can you hear me sing, Glenda? Can you? I'll have to be a little quieter. <laughs> sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. So I'll have to practice up on the harp too. And when I have invited by in for special music uh, or art to give special music, I'll just have to come up and do a solo. Solo, you can't hear me. See how that works? Okay. Now, uh, let's go to uh, the New Testament. And I want to... Uh, Go to uh, Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 20. Ephesians, I think that's, uh, I, I don't know if I've got them out of order or not there. Uh, uh, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Brian, uh, yeah, Ephesians 5, 20. And uh, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, then in, um, let's see, uh, Colossians, the second chapter, verse 7. No, let's go to Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse 6. Philippians 4, 6. Yeah, that's, that's the order right here. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So, everything we do, be thankful, if it's good and right. And then with our requests, be thankful for God, for his providence and for all the things he's provided for us and all the good that he's done for us. And so I don't want to list all of the things that we can be thankful for, but uh, we know. And um, then in Colossians, the second chapter, and verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Abounding with thanksgiving. That's overflowing and that is being thankful. Exuberant, abounding thanksgiving. And uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Now, how many 
that are observing or have observed the day of Thanksgiving have done it from the religious point of view. I know the national, and it's nice to be off from work and get paid for the holiday and then go ship, go out and shop and spend a lot of money and uh, go eat out and uh, have it. Uh, turkey day, they call it now. But how many people are really thankful and really appreciate I know most of us here, we could raise our hands that we have thanked God for all the good things that he's done for us. And so I want to go to Second uh, uh, Corinthians, the ninth chapter, back up a little bit, uh, verse 12, 2 uh, Corinthians 9, verse 12 through 15. Let's begin in verse 11. And we can just keep going back. We're back in Genesis, uh, but we'll start it. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal distribution unto them and to all men, and by their prayers for you, which long after you end the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. So we want to thank God for all of the bountiful providence that he's provided for us during this past year. Now, I have one more scripture, and I want to uh, close uh, with that in uh, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and uh, verse 57. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that gives us the victory over all of the human weaknesses that we have, over the world that is out there that is after us, over the devil, over all of these beast powers and, and these uh, European heads and uh, the Russian and the Chinese governments that are going to kill some. Now, it's predicted that some will give their life in obedience and martyrdom, and some will endure until Christ comes. So we've got a terrible, horrible time ahead of us, we know. But we can be thankful for the past deliverance of God and for Christ that gives us the victory in all of these things that we're going to have to face. So every year as we observe uh, this National Day of, uh, and, and Spiritual Day of Thanksgiving, as we're right now completing this weekend of Thanksgiving, uh, we can remember some of these lessons and think of some of these things and do some more research and uh, be appreciative. So keep watching. Be prepared. Don't be deceived by man or by the devil. Appreciate our true history. Be thankful to God for our calling and future destiny in the family of God forever and ever.